Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This episode is the second in a sub-series unpacking Matthew's depiction of Jesus' first three individual detailed healings. In all three interactions, Jesus not only heals, he reconciles. In other words, his healing is not just physical, but social. In the last episode, we saw how through touching an outcast, Jesus declares him clean and restores his standing in the community. In this episode, we will examine how Jesus interacts with the enemy, a Roman centurion. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 16 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with the text, Matthew 5, 5 to 13. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Here Jesus practices what he preaches. In chapter 5, covered in episode 11 of this series, Jesus tells his followers to love their enemies. This radical movement of reconciliation for a new society must extend forgiveness and reconciling love to all who come, even the soldiers of the occupation, even to a centurion, one of their military commanders. While Jesus practicing what he preaches may not be that shocking, what is shocking is what the Roman centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion a powerful Roman military leader, bows and scrapes before this peasant, asking for help, calling him Lord. He then talks about how he understands authority, describing how he orders slaves and soldiers under his command to do things. In response, Jesus gives the centurion an order. The centurion says he tells soldiers and slaves to go and do things. Jesus then commands the centurion to Go. It's actually a different word in Greek, but it means the same thing. The point is that Jesus, the peasant revolutionary leader, exercises authority over the Roman military commander. He tells him to go. 
Jesus has not merely extended reconciling love to his enemy Gentile military leader. He has demonstrated authority over him. In the highly symbolic culture of honor-shame, the peasant has nonviolently triumphed over the empire. A powerful image in a text written not long after a violent rebellion against Rome has failed. Just before Jesus gives this merciful order of healing to the centurion, he makes a supremely hyperbolic statement. Truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, both some traditional and some scholarly commentators have seen this statement as evidence of a replacement ideology in the Gospel of Matthew. The idea that the Gospel replaces Jews with Gentile Christians as the chosen people of God. In this interpretation of this passage, Jesus attributes great faith to a Gentile, even an occupying soldier, surpassing the faith of anyone in Israel, and then says that Gentiles will come from the east and west to eat with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom, i.e. the Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness. This interpretation fails for two reasons, both having to do with context. First, the social context. As I described in an earlier episode, Middle Easterners then and now love to talk in hyperbole. They love to exaggerate to get their point across. Some friends of mine a few years back had dinner with a Middle Eastern man. It was a pleasant meal and a good time was had by all. They were all saying that at the end of the evening. But the Middle Easterner kept saying that it was the best night of his life. He said that not because it was literally the best night of his life. He was married and had kids. Both his wedding day and each of the days of the births of his children would easily surpass in greatness this pleasant evening meal with his American friends. The reason he said that it was the best night of his life is because it's the sort of thing that Middle Easterners say to promote warm feelings, whether between friends, family members, or even strangers. The situation of Jesus and the centurion in this story, a setting in which peace between enemies hangs in the balance, makes such statements all the more appropriate. So when Jesus states that he has not found such faith in anyone in Israel, it is not meant to be taken literally, but as a hyperbolic statement to facilitate reconciliation with an enemy. But there is a sense in which the trust the faith that the centurion has placed in Jesus is greater than it would be for a Jewish peasant in the sense that it is harder to do. A centurion is not only a foreigner and an enemy, he also has much greater power, wealth, and most importantly, social status. For such a person to come pleading with a peasant social revolutionary for help takes immensely great faith the kind that would not even be necessary for a Jewish peasant. Today we think of faith as the ability of an individual to believe in God or trust in God. However, the word faith in the ancient world meant a lot more than that. 
It was more relational and had strong connotations of loyalty and allegiance. Think of the phrase, keeping faith with. To trust someone and maintain allegiance to them was to keep faith with them, to have faith in them. The word faith was used to describe political allegiances. People had faith not only in God, but in political leaders, social superiors, movements, as well as in saviors or messiahs. For the centurion to demonstrate faith in Jesus has strong connotations of switching political allegiances. The text doesn't say what the centurion does from that point on, and there's nothing in Matthew about any soldiers, much less a centurion, becoming actual, overt disciples of Jesus. But the original audience might have assumed that this centurion might from that point on be a sort of fifth column, or at least a weak link in the Roman occupying forces. In episode two, I explained that the term son of God in the ancient world was used for kings and emperors. In ancient Israelite literature, it is applied to the kings of Israel. But in the first century Roman propaganda, it is a title applied to Caesar. So this Roman centurion has, at some level, switched allegiances from the Roman son of God to the Israelite son of God, whom he calls Lord. We will see this happen again at the foot of the cross toward the end of Matthew. So Jesus' statement that the centurion has greater faith than anyone in Israel should be understood through the lens of Middle Eastern hyperbole, and it should also take into account the fact that for a centurion to have faith in Jesus, he must divest himself of far more honor or privilege than if he were a peasant, and additionally, that it requires him not only to trust an enemy, but also at some level to switch political allegiances. It is no wonder, then, that Jesus makes a grand statement about the centurion's faith. But even more than that, this story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant fits very well within ancient Israelite literature. First of all, it would cause the original audience to think of the story of the prophet Elisha healing the Syrian commander Naaman. Interestingly, Elisha heals this foreign commander of leprosy, the very condition that Jesus addresses in the passage right before this one. Matthew seems to be using literary themes to situate Jesus in the Israelite prophetic tradition. The statement about Gentiles coming to feast with the patriarchs also comes out of the prophetic literature of ancient Israel. The feast that Jesus references here appears to be something that occurs at a future time when the people of the earth are resurrected, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seem to be. It is, of course, a metaphor with a long tradition in Israel. Isaiah 25 presents an image of a similar feast taking place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, a feast for all peoples. In other words, a feast that includes Gentiles. This feast in Isaiah also has a sort of resurrection theme. It will be a feast of rich food and well-aged wines when God will swallow up death forever. This feast in Isaiah, while referencing the end of human death, is not merely an otherworldly event. The feast is portrayed 
as a celebration of the liberation of Israel from the empires that have oppressed it. So when Jesus employs the image of a grand liberation feast here in this passage in Matthew, he is referencing an event that will celebrate the liberation of Israel from imperial oppression. The feast that Gentiles, such as this centurion, will attend will be a feast of the liberation of Israel from Rome. Jesus employs this image, as the prophets do, as a metaphor for the final goal of the work that he is doing, this work of organizing a peasant movement for a new society. At the end, there will be a great resurrection and a grand feast celebrating the end of all oppression, including Roman oppression. All who join in this work, who join the movement or become its allies, will join in this celebration. The Roman centurion, then, will be a guest at the feast that celebrates Rome's defeat. Now, some may still object that Jesus not only says that a Gentile has greater faith than anyone in Israel and that Gentiles will be guests at the great liberation feast, but also that the heirs of the kingdom, i.e. Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This statement, however, is very much in keeping with Middle Eastern hyperbolic customs and with Israelite prophetic literature. Israel's own prophets repeatedly pronounced judgment on Israel, especially its ruling class, for neglecting the needs of the poor and collaborating with empires. Furthermore, Matthew uses this image of being thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth to ironic effect. This is the first of six uses of this image in the Gospel of Matthew. By the last one, in chapter 25, it will become evident that Matthew intends a deep irony to be communicated through this image. While in this passage, those thrown into the outer darkness are those who oppose the movement for liberation, the image will evolve through Jesus' parables into a place where innocent victims, even righteous people, will wind up. In the end, Jesus himself will be, so to speak, thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will be taken out of the city to be crucified, where the sky will turn dark for three hours. It is also worth noting that the Liberation Feast has an evolution in the prophetic literature. It begins as a mere feast of liberation, but in later apocalyptic books, it becomes a feast in which the defeated empire, the image of a great sea monster or other large beast, becomes the food upon which a liberated Israel feasts. In Matthew, the feast evolves as well. It evolves toward the Last Supper. There, the image of a liberation feast is transformed. It is not the enemy that is feasted upon, but rather the body and blood of a nonviolent prophetic martyr. Jesus becomes the food in the form of the bread and the wine for his followers. The Liberation Feast is transformed from a celebration of violent military victory, the sort that failed to come about in the rebellion of the late 60s of the first century, right before Matthew was written. The Liberation Feast is transformed from a celebration of violent military victory 
into a meal of invitation to martyrdom, the nonviolent victory over the empire. In the end, the liberation feast comes only through the martyrdom of Jesus as well as those who follow after him. To sit down at this feast means to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, the way of nonviolent prophetic resistance against the empire and nonviolent prophetic triumph over the empire. Jesus, in this symbolic sense, is the first martyr for his movement. A martyr suffers for his people. As we will see in the next passage, Jesus absorbs violence and carries the wounds of his people. That is how he brings healing and liberation. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please visit our Facebook page and leave some comments. This has been Episode 16 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. (laughs) 